Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, thank you for your patience. I like getting to you straight away, but we've had a couple of complaints um, from some of our listeners about long queues. And, of course, we are worried about super spreader events. We've just had one um, linked, apparently linked to a, a, an institution where lots of young people were, were having a party, apparently. Um, but good to have you on the show, sir. Morning, Kino. How's things? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Normally I would tell you, oh, I'm doing great. You'll have to phone the police. I'm doing so good. <laughs> um, at the moment, um, you know, we, we're trying to dig ourselves out of a hole in this economy, and our president has delivered a lackluster economic recovery plan. Uh, and then, of course, we've had a lot of people phoning about red tape and long queues. And there's a huge photograph of literally almost a hundred and hundreds of people actually standing outside a home affairs office and not socially distancing. I know it's outside, but I mean, there's still potential for this virus to spread, right? Really tricky for, for governments, though, this, isn't it? Because it, on the one yeah. hand, you know, you think this is an opportunity. There's been a big giant reset button pushed for the world. And it's there for people to kind of say, well, the, the playing field is sort of leveled a bit in some respects. So there are opportunities. On the other hand, it's really hard to forward plan because if you want to, to try and access a certain sector of the economy or do a certain thing or m- make the most of one of these opportunities, you don't know where the rest of the world economy is going to be and who your customers are going to be in the next year or so because you don't know if their economy is still going to be trashed or if the world is back to business as usual. It's making economic and forward planning really, really tricky for everybody everywhere yeah it certainly is and you know when you have these long queues this is essentially what could lead to these super spreader events well that's true um that's that's certainly true more more contacts between more people more of the time means more cases of virus that's absolutely the case yeah people do have to be careful um if you're going to go and hang out with other people you are increasing your risk of transmitting anything actually whether it's the flu norovirus or coronavirus well, it's something we'll raise with the minister when he joins us later. But uh, let's go to John. John in Lakeside has got a question, Chris. Good morning, Chris. Morning, John. I was sitting in a chair in my lounge the other evening, and a tiny little spider, small mosquito, came down in front of my face on a web, on a spindle of web. And it was one, I measured it later, it was one and a half metres from the ceiling. Where on earth does that tiny little thing <laughs> store all of that web? <laughs> Yeah, I've had the same thoughts myself. I was sitting out in my garden recently and I looked up towards the roof of my house and there was a thread that ran from the chimney right the way down to the edge of the roof. I mean, it was metres long. And the thing that gets me is how does the spider know, in inverted commas, that I'm going to go from there to there? Spiders are clever and uh, they've evolved to be very good at doing this kind of thing. And when they're making webs, the way in which they actually get strong anchor points in the first place is that they'll sit in one place and they stream out a stream of silk on the wind and they use different silks for different jobs. It's like spider horses for spider courses. But they stream out a strand of silk on the wind and the breeze and and they, they can feel the tension and then they know when it's hit something and stuck and that's how they they know when they've got a firm anchor point on the other end and they can then crawl along it do something at the other end go to the midpoint along it drop a perpendicular down to the ground and anchor that and then you've got a t-shape and that's how they start building a web but that's by the by the answer is that the spider silk is made of proteins these proteins are made in the same way as if you've ever mixed epoxy where you have a monomer and a hardener and you mix a certain amount of them together and you mix them up and then they start a chemical reaction that forms the mature stiff glue the same sort of thing happens with spider silk there is a gland on the back of the spider that has the raw materials in it in that gland in order to react the components together spin them weave them and make this extremely complicated protein 
which we still cannot make artificially as as well as a spider can in the laboratory despite all of our technology and it it comes out of the back end of the spider making that that silk strand so it is made on demand and the the, the silk weight for weight and weight for volume is incredibly strong and as i say the spider can vary the recipe of the silk so it has different silks for different jobs and some silks are more stretchy, some are more resilient and robust, and the spider uses different recipes according to different things that it's doing in order to maximise the uh, mechanical strength or demands or abilities of its silk and minimise the use of resources in the spider. And the spider can consume the silk, digest it and recycle it when it's done with it. I mean, it's the ultimate biodegradable building material. I just going to say, the amount of web is a lot more than the web size of the spider. Where's it get all the, into the, are the ingredients expandable? <laughs> yes, remember that um, you, you can have something that takes up a lot of space but is not very dense. A spider is a very dense thing. Water and ice, good example. If you take ice, ice when you've turned it from the water into the solid is taking up a lot more space. It's less dense than the water because of the arrangement of the molecules in three-dimensional space. Monday to Friday. 9 a.m. till 12 p.m. This is Today with Kino Kamis on Cape Talk. And you are joined by the naked scientist, Dr. Chris Smith, answering all your questions about everyday life, and he gives you a lovely scientific bend to it. So let's go to Joanne in Cape Town. Hi there, Joanne. Good morning. Good morning, Kino. Um, I have a question for Chris. Go for it. Um, yeah, I, I'm a nursing sister working in an elderly residence. Um, where we have a, um, well. a, a, a frail care with dementia and Alzheimer's um, residents in one section. And what myself and the staff have noticed over the years is that whenever there's a full moon, and in October, it just so happens that this October there's two full moons, we've noticed that the, some of the residents, their behaviour is more um, agitated than usual and they're kind of set each other off and we, we, we just amongst us always um, say, oh, it's the full moon and therefore their the behaviour is a little bit crazier than usual. I, I, I'm wondering if there's anything scientifically related to that or whether it's just something we um, have accidentally assumed. <laughs> Hi, Joanne. Good spot. And the answer is that there is an association and a few years back we covered this story on The Naked Scientist. Researchers were doing a sleep study uh, this is in Switzerland, I think they did the work. They were bringing people in to look at various aspects of, of human sleep and human body clock behaviour. And when you bring people into these laboratories, you keep painstaking records of when they sleep, how long they sleep, the quality of their sleep and so on. And it just so happened that someone went back and looked at the records of this sleep study that had been done for totally different reasons and noticed that, well, if they aligned the sleep study with what the moon phase was, that there seemed to be an association between people falling asleep less quickly and reporting lower quality of overall sleep at different stages of the moon cycle. And so when there was these full moon cycles, there were these changes to people's sleep. Now, they weren't sure if this was just an association or there's something causal going on, and I, don't, I think we, we still don't know. But it was quite a strong relationship, and other people have said there may be some kind of relationship between altered human behaviour and certainly altered animal behaviour and the moon cycle. Why it should happen, we don't know. It may be something as trivial as it's just brighter and lighter. And we know that, you know, as a, as a visually dominated species, we are 
quite strongly driven by how light it is, how bright it is. It, it affects our activity and it affects the stimulation we're getting because if we can see more, it makes us think more. So it may be that part of it is just there's an arousing effect of there being more light at night. There is an association, therefore, but we don't know really what underpins this. But spot on, you, you've made the, the observation that others have made. So well done you. Thank you very much for that, Joanne. Here's a question for Chris. What is the reason ladies love red shoes, yet I seldom see them wear them? Is that a question? Is that really is that a question? Has, has your wife Maybe got red should... shoes? I don't think, has my, no, I think my wife might have one pair of red shoes, but she, she wears... No. I don't think they really go down very well at work in the doctor's surgery, so... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why it's um it, it's more kind of social pressure in her case. I don't know. I don't own any red shoes either. Now, do weight changes affect our bones? Yes, they absolutely do. Um, that is true. Yeah. They do. And uh, the reason for this is if you gain weight, you're applying more load to your skeleton. And the skeleton contains detectors, for want of a better phrase, which in response to impact and loading and activity drive the deposition of fresh bone and suppress the erosion of bone so one way to keep your bone strong is to do high impact exercise this is why astronauts who go into say the international space station have to be very careful to make sure they do load bearing exercise they work against a, an elastic or a spring for instance to load their bones because if you remove that stimulus the bone interprets the lack of loading as I have a massive oversupply of metabolic demand. What's the point of having this very heavy, costly tissue that's uh, costing me a lot of energy to maintain? I could get away with a lot less of it, so it throws away half your skeleton. And people will come back from space because of microgravity with a skeleton that's decades older than their real chronological age. Yeah. And so, yes, weight does make a difference because if you're heavier, you're applying more impact on your skeleton. And if you're lighter, you're applying less load to your skeleton, you remove that stimulus and your, and your skeleton will erode more. This becomes more important the older we get because older people tend to take less impact exercise. And also in ladies, once you go beyond the age of the menopause, where periods stop, you have a lower level of oestrogen. And oestrogen has a pro-bone building effect. So if you have lower levels of oestrogen, you're more at risk of osteoporosis, the thinning of bones and loss of bone matrix wow. as you get older. And so one good idea is to do as much impact and loading exercise as you can to preserve that. And also not being too thin it does help because it means your bones get extra shocks when you walk just by virtue of the fact of your body weight. And that helps to, to keep the bones strong. Interesting indeed. But another message coming through here. Please ask Dr. Chris why some people have a conscience and others don't. And what exactly is a conscience? Uh, just before we go to that, I've actually found the reference mm. for the moon story. I'm, I'm right, it was 2013 that this came out. So uh, I, I, this is what I wrote. True to their Swiss reputation for crafting exquisite timepieces, scientists in Basel have shown that the lunar calendar affects human sleep patterns. Uh, Basel University researcher Christian Kohochen and his colleagues have shown a profound relationship between the phase of the moon and how long and how well subjects sleep. Uh, in their original work, brain activity, various measures of sleep quality, as well as blood hormone levels were recorded while participants spent several nights sleeping in a laboratory under strictly controlled conditions. This included removing access to time cues and external light stimuli. The team plotted when their data had been collected 
from each of the subjects onto a lunar calendar. Around the time of the full moon, they found, brainwave activity corresponding to deep sleep was 30% lower, subjects took five minutes longer on average to nod off at night, and the subject took about 20 minutes less sleep in total. Also, the sleep hormone melatonin was significantly lower. So the full moon did produce those effects in those laboratory subjects who were uh, being very carefully scrutinised in the laboratory. The team say these lunar cycles are mysterious, so they can't explain it. And they point out the challenge now is to unravel that neurological clockwork that underpins those effects. So yes, so it was 2013, it was in the journal Current Biology when, when they, they made that uh, discovery. Um, why humans have a conscience? Because we're a social species. We get on well with each other. In order to have a fabric of society to look after each other in the way that we do, we have to care about each other. We have a very big brain and the front part of our brain enables us to put ourselves into other people's shoes. When we look at somebody and we look at somebody who, say, stubs their toe, trips over, hurts themselves or gets abused in public, we can visualise what we would feel like were we in their position and this means that we can then experience the emotions as though it was happening to us and that enables us to feel empathy for that person and to want to help them. And so when, and we know therefore that if we do something our actions will have consequences so that helps to glue the fabric of society together because we, we all know that if we do these things we hurt each other so it stops us being selfish, it helps us to think as a group and, and it's actually thinking and behaving and working as a group group that's made the human race so successful okay now i have a question which i recall having seen on your site as well um this is a a young lady her name is deborah she wants to know how do i become a scientist like chris <laughs> well deborah uh, De- De- you have to be a geek years old. yeah well good good on you deborah and and in fact you know we had the producer of david attenborough's new netflix documentary on the program last week and we also had on the program Theo Bloom. She is the executive editor of the British Medical Journal. And we were asking the guy, who Colin Butfield, who is the executive producer on David Attenborough's film, what they hope to achieve with, with an Attenborough documentary. Because obviously the, the, they try to, to invoke what we dub the Attenborough effect don't they, where they show us something and say, you may have missed this, you may not have realised this is going on, but this really matters, this is what you can do about it. And it makes a huge difference. And and I was saying to him, have you got anything in mind for the new doco? Are there some goals? And Theo piped up and she said, well, do you know what? The reason I went and became a scientist, because, you know, this is a very successful person who runs a medical journal now. She said, the reason I went and became a scientist is because David Attenborough's life on Earth was on when I was at school. And it made me want to become a scientist. So what would I say, Deborah, is listen to fantastic programs like this one. Uh, I'm only kidding. Uh, this this uh, is sometimes a fantastic program, isn't it? But listen to listen to science programs. Find the thing that you really like and that really floats your boat. Because science is a very broad church. There are lots of different disciplines, and there are lots of different aspects to it. And some things are more interesting to certain people than others. If you're a real physicsy, mathematically driven person, you will love the intricacies of the physics end of the spectrum. If you are more into animals, the natural world, that kind of thing, biology. And that's really going to float your boat. You need to know, because as they say, do a job you love and you'll never do a day's work in your life. And the thing about science is like at the moment, things are a bit disrupted, obviously. But it's a it's a wonderful thing because anywhere in the world, 
you can take your science, you can take your scientific training and you can do that job. And if you're lucky enough to have some scientific jobs, they will actually pay you to go to some of the most exotic, exciting, wonderful places on Earth. Many of them are actually on the African continent and do your work and you can get out there and see things and do things that the average mere mortal never gets to yeah. get near. And uh, so start now, start finding out what you like, what you love, and then put all your effort into getting the right qualifications in that particular area, but do it in something you know really floats your boat and that you're good at. If you, you know, it, it, I know we go around saying to people, you can do anything you want. That's true, you can try and do anything you want, but if you want to do it and be really good at it and be really successful and at the top of your game, you need the killer yeah. combination of something you love and something you're good at. And if you've got that passion and you've got that skill, you go a long way. And if you're not particularly good at it just right, right now... Um, but you have passion. And goes a long way. Want to, yeah, yeah, certainly goes a long way because you can you – know, repetition and doing things over and over and over again until you actually – well, it depends what you do, right? Um, but if you, you, can, you can install the ability. But do you know um, what's so refreshing in, in about Deborah's case. question, Kino? And that is yeah. that if you ask – and this is the really sad thing. Someone did a survey recently of, of young people growing up in America, and they asked them, yeah. what do you want to become? Now, I bet you when you were a young teenager, someone asked you, what do you want to become? You, you probably had some ideas, but there were certain ideas that were in your mind of things that you see as important jobs to do. And they used yeah. to historically be professional things. They were things like, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a scientist. Right. I'm going to... I mean, some people said they wanted to go into broadcasting radio, but that, that wasn't often at the top of the list. If you ask young people these days, number one on the list, influencer on YouTube. And that, that I think is a bit sad because there are some very good, very rich influence on YouTube, but there are not many of them. And it's not something that is a long term sustainable thing at the moment because it's a thing of the moment. It's not a long term thing forever. And the best combination is to have a strong skill set driven by knowledge and an ability to learn and teach yourself. Take that core skill and then if you get the chance to be an influencer on YouTube with that skill, that's great. Do that as well. But don't make that the only thing that you do because it will only work for a little while. And then media's like that. It's pretty brutal and they'll move on to the next thing. So um, I'm, I'm very pleased to hear Deborah say she wants to do something highly professional. Last one. Chris, as always, great chatting to you. You must have a fabulous weekend with the family and we'll chat to you next week. I'm looking forward to it, Keena. Have a great weekend, everyone. See you soon. Bye-bye. See you soon. There we go. That's Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist.